What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, no, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Right? And I, <laughs> that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Look, the thing All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William A. Nogueira. And we are rounding out our death penalty cases here. And this is going to be the case of Donald Beardsley. Um, but before we get to that, if you don't mind, we have a few listener questions. All right. Guillermo in Vancouver, Canada asks, is there an inflation rate of contraband in prison, uh, drugs is in parentheses. So I guess that's what he means by that. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting question. My question to you, this gentleman is, are you planning on, you know, launching an enterprise in prison? <laughs> it's, uh, it's not a good idea, but, um, so here's the skinny on it. Anything that you can't get in here legally and it's illegal and people want it, you're talking a huge markup, something that costs $100 in the streets. You mentioned drugs, so let's just say with that. It costs you, you spend 800 bucks in here to buy it. The harder it is to get, the higher the markup is. If it's something people really want a lot and there's not enough of it, the price goes up again. So the answer, the skinny of the question, the, easy, the simple answer is, yeah, it's a huge markup, and you're talking hundreds of percentage points on everything in here. And as I said, you mentioned drugs, man. Um, yeah, that's a bad one right there because uh, a lot of things happen in prison because of drugs. And specifically, people get killed and people are stabbed and people are you know, relegated to dark little corners because of drugs. So I'm not one of those guys that uh, really believes in uh, that type of usage or whatever. Um, there was a time in my career I probably would thought, Hey, that's a good idea. I don't anymore. So that's the answer to the question. It's not a good idea, but that's the answer. Um, so Erica from Queensland, Australia, we have international listeners here and she asked, what is the size of, uh, of your home there? Okay, so let me give you a mental picture. The, 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 the dimensions are pretty simple. It's nine and a half feet deep, eight feet tall, and four and a half feet wide. But to give you a mental picture, if I stood in the center of my cell and I put my elbow out and touched one wall, if I put my hand down flat, I would touch the other wall. If I reach up, I'm six foot one, I would touch the ceiling. If I take four quick steps, I would hit the front of my cell and the back of my cell. It's tiny. 
I guess, budgetary reasons, but is it necessary for it to be that small? It seems ex- excessively small to use an oxymoron. Well, the, the, answer, the quick answer is that this prison was built in 1852, and everything is small because there's so many cells. There's 528 cells in this particular block. So this is a very old prison. It's obsolete. It's practically on the verge of being closed. I think death row keeps it alive because all the money they pump into it. But yeah, most of the new prisons, the cells are 10 feet by 10 feet, and usually two people inhabit those cells, which doesn't make it any better, but at least you get a little bit of room to move and walk. But where I'm at, it's excessively small, as you mentioned. I don't understand the point of having a roommate. Isn't it relatively common that one of them kills the other person or something? That happens a lot. There's a few guys uh, that are on death row because they killed other convicts. And actually, I talked to two of them today. They're here on death row because they killed other convicts in other prisons in their cells when the doors were closed in the evening. I'm not a convict or anything, but if I shared a 10 by 10 room with another guy, I'd probably end up killing him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I really would. It sounds terrible. Um, So, uh, Robin from Anchor. Oh, I know Robin. Hi, Robin. Uh, wants to know what is the most popular TV show. I, I'm in in the in the common area. I'm assuming that there's like an area where people like watch TV or something. No, that's actually not true. That would be true in a level two or one prison. In level three and four prisons, or here on death row in San Quentin, there are no common rooms. Yeah, not a good idea because a gunner couldn't cover the room. There would be probably murders there every other day. Um, We have our own televisions in our cells. We're allowed to purchase them if we want to, as well as a stereo system. Well, when I say stereo system, I mean a freaking CD player. So we don't uh, share televisions. So the answer is I don't know what other people watch. Um, I don't watch a whole lot of television, although I do have a small, relatively small, 15-inch flat-screen TV. And, um, you know, I like I like PBS. I like to watch things about reading shows and kind of nerdy shows, which is kind of, a, kind of weird, right, when I was that other guy when I was younger. Um, and I guess that kind of actually folds into this next question really easily, our last question. Uh, which is Jacob, and he's in Bellingham, Washington, and he asks, is there a delay on pop culture? Um, it's almost similar to the drug question, but not exactly. Like, do you know the, the current news? I guess you just said you had a TV, but I, I'm assuming what he's wondering here is, like, um, you know, if you ever go to Arkansas, they're about five years behind the times. Um, right. <laughs> How does it work in, a, yeah, no. in on death row? Yeah, I'm sure that people from there's a couple of people from Arkansas right now loading their guns to come get your ass. But yeah, no, um, the current pop culture, meaning music, uh, TV shows, uh, yeah, everybody's pretty much up to date. If you watch those kind of shows, you know, you can watch TMZ here, you can watch 
extra extra and these these programs about what's going on in Hollywood. Uh, me being a well, like you, Matt, uh, you know, a writer, a screenwriter. We get magazines. We look at different um, periodicals that keep us abreast of what's going on in Hollywood, who's running what, what's been bought by different agencies. So it's pretty current. We have a pretty current um, system in here, which is basically news and everything else that we get. So yeah, nothing, not a whole lot gets passed us in here. Cool. Um, so moving on to Donald Beardsley, I guess. Well, real quick before we start with this guy. Um, who is just your run-of-the-mill murderer guy. Uh, um, he was executed. But you were telling me, and I actually heard through a few sources, that I guess there was like a major incident that happened in San Quentin, like, what, this week? Well, yeah, it happened yesterday, actually, and it wasn't that I heard through the grapevine. It happened on the yard. Uh, as you and I have spoken over the last few months, that you and I have got to know each other, Matt, before we put this show together, and we kind of you know, put our heads together, get the, get the death row diaries going. I explained to you that I had kind of a, it, it pissed me off when I would hear and I would see these programs and I'd see these books come up by these so-called, you know, people that went to prison, they're celebrities, they're housewives, they're rappers, and they do six months a year and they come out and, you know, they write a book about sitting next to a pond and, and missing their families and driving around in a golf car. And, man, that's not prison. That's a freaking Disneyland. You know, guys, celebrities that come to prison, they're stuck in protective custody. They don't see anybody because they would kill them. So my example of this and what I'm getting to is that in real prison, people get stabbed and killed all the time. It happens three feet from you. The spray of blood hits you in the face. And that sounds kind of jacked up, but that's the truth. Yesterday, five guys, not one, not two, not three. No, 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 no. Five guys. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. As I was saying, five guys were stabbed, cut up on the yard, and sent to the hospital, bleeding excessively from stab wounds. Were the, was this like a, a gang thing? They were, were the five guys affiliated with each other? Well, everything in prison has to do with groups individual problems, but all of them were not generally or don't have to be related to each other. Sometimes people, when something happens, like, okay, this is a perfect time to go stab somebody else. And it happens. I'm sorry, it's not funny. This is how people think it. No, it's not funny, but this is the reality of what happens in prison, and especially a prison of this caliber. And I'm not talking about saying quit in the mainland. Listen, bless those guys' hearts. Those guys are doing six months to a year. They have programs, college, they have a little podcast called Ear Hustle. Hey, great stuff. But that's not a prison out there. This in here is where the stuff... You have 60 seconds remaining. Because when you cross those lines of where it says condemn row and you walk in here, it's like walking into 1977. And everything is serious. And that's the difference between what you hear on TMZ and these rappers that go to prison for six months a year and they think that they've got some kind of respect, that's a joke. This is what really happens in prison. And those five guys that were stabbed are still in the hospital can probably attest to that. Hey, man, I'm back. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of noticed that, and I would like to preface this comment with, I am not tough. And uh, 
but I, I have seen a few of the YouTube videos on San Quentin, and it's it's these guys that look like they're taking too much creatine. You know, they're all muscle bound, like uh, almost kind of balloon looking like, and it's like, dude, I I think I could kick your ass because I don't feel like you can even move. You know? Yeah, that's um, people thought the same thing about Mike Tyson. <laughs> oh, he can't move. He's too big. He doesn't have fire Wrong. Um, look, those type of muscles you see in guys in prison, and by the way, there are no longer weights in prison. Some of us that have lifted for decades continue to work out, and as you put it one time, Matt, man, Bill, you look jacked. Well, yeah, that's just, you continue to get the muscles, remember, so you keep pushing those different levels and you keep some of your muscle mass. But those guys that you saw built a certain way, they're built that way for a reason. They're built to perform. It's not going to be an hour fight. You're talking 11 to 13 seconds is what it takes. So you don't need a whole lot of endurance. You just have to be extremely explosive. And when you're that muscular, you can be very explosive in a very short period of time, in a very short, uh, very confined area. And that's what they're looking for. So these are actually specifically functional builds that these guys have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Don't let the size of someone fool you. I mean, we've seen some of these guys that are heavyweight boxers. They look like they ate a donut every day for the last 50 years. But if they hit you, you're going to know it. Well, I have alabaster skin and green eyes. And uh, I, I will, uh, I guess, if hopefully I never go to prison. But if I do, I will, uh, I will heed that advice and keep my opinion to myself. Anyway. Uh, so we're going to go in, uh, Donald J. Beardsley. We have, uh, he's the third to last person that was executed in California, you know, in, in recent years. I, I guess we can start off like we have every other person by saying that he had a terrible upbringing. Uh, you know, that's, that's debatable. I, I don't know if you could say it was, it was bad. Born in St. Louis, Missouri, or as some people say, Missouri. Uh, he's the eldest of three children, and his father dies when he's 11 years old. I, I did not, at least in the case factors that I read from the Supreme Court of California, there wasn't a whole lot of mention about child abuse or much of anything. At age 15, he is sent to military school. Didn't sound that bad. And at 19, he joins the Air Force where he served as a mechanic, an aircraft mechanic. So he kind of knew what he was doing. Um, and then, I don't know what got into this guy, but three years into his stint in 1965, he and another airman steal a freaking car together, and they're sentenced to a work farm in Minnesota. And while he's there, he gets hit by a fallen tree and suffers a skull uh, fracture, and he's in a coma. So, so at least that is not good. At least half, if not more, of the people that we've covered, whether we're sympathetic to them or not, mostly not. But they all have a history of like some kind of head injury. But I mean, I've been concussed yeah. three times. Does that mean I get to go murder someone? No, I don't think so. Yeah, that's that's yeah. You can't use just an incident like that to say, "Well, look, that gives me a pass." 
No. And, uh, you know, me being the person that I am, I also believe that child abuse doesn't give you a pass because you do have, like, child, um, these serial killers that had horrible childhoods. I get it. Look, that really does, you know, like the fire that creates some of these monsters. But I don't believe that that justifies you going around hunting children or hunting freaking people you know, raping, killing and stuff, because at some point when you're 24, 25, 28, 30 years of age, you have the option to say, hey, I need some help. Well, I'm not going to do that, but if you succumb to your urges and your appetites, well. Yeah, and I mean, it's. I think you referenced Mike Tyson earlier. You know, he's obviously been knocked out a few times, and um, yeah, it, it's a completely, it's a step removed to, to understate it that you decide to start murdering people, but this is what uh, Beardsley did. Yeah, and that's, this is the weird part about this case. This this case kind of stumped me because there's a lot of conflicting issues here. So he gets out of the, the Air Force, and he marries a woman in 1966. And I won't mention her name. I mean, why mention a woman's name who... Obviously, Ty doesn't want to do with this guy. But two years later, they get divorced. And then in 1969, things go completely haywire for this guy. He goes to a bar. He meets a woman by the name of Laura Griffin. Uh, you know, this is the 60s. It's a little, you know, free love. He goes home with her and decides to kill her. He just met her. He chokes her, stabs her drowns her until dead, and then just as mysteriously, he goes to the police department, turns himself in, confesses to killing her, they convict him, they send him to prison for seven years, and then he's paroled, and he never gave a motive, a reason for killing her, an explanation of any kind. So, now he's back on the street again, and he seems to kind of disappear. Nothing happens. There's no record of him doing anything. He gets out. And right away, well, not right away, but in 1981, he surfaces again. Suddenly, the same thing. Um, He is living with a young woman. Uh, He lives in Redwood City, California, here in the Bay Area. He has a studio apartment with a girl by the name of Ricky Soria. And he is playing kind of a knight in shining armor. He's trying to get her away from a drug dealer because this woman's using drugs. And, you know, he's, there's this weird situation where she tells him that, that this woman named Paula Gilding or Patty, that's her nickname, and Stacy Benjamin have ripped off this guy named William Forrester in a drug deal because these girls, Paula, Patty, Gilding, uh, they deal drugs. So Donald wanted to help this girl. I don't know if he was in love with her or he wanted her to think of him as a knight in shining armor. He decides to help her. And they come up with this plan, which is just, I, I'm telling you, when I when I first read this, I thought, 
Jesus, is this guy an idiot? But they come up with this plan to bring Patty Gilding and Stacy to the house, to the apartment. And while they're there, they're supposed to terrify these girls, take their drugs, and kind of just scare the living crap out of them. But things go completely the opposite. This is at least, this is what his testimony said during trial. So instead of trapping the girls, as soon as they walk into the house, and by the way, William Forrester and this guy named Frank Rutherford are hiding in the house. And as soon as Patty walks in, this dude pulls out a shotgun and shoots her in the shoulder. When you shoot somebody with a shotgun, the noise of the gun alone, if you're living in an apartment complex, is going to bring in every freaking cop from here to King Buck too. But he shoots her, and that's it. Donald Beersley takes her into the bathroom and tries to stop the bleeding. And, but, listen to this. They tie both her and Stacy's hands and feet. And then this guy named Frank Rutherford tells Patty, who's been shot, we're going to take you to the hospital. But he says it's in front of Stacy, and he winks at Donald Beardsley. So if you'll notice, most of the stuff is being, that's being done, it's being done by this guy by the name of Frank Rutherford. Okay, this guy seems to be kind of the master planner of this whole situation. So, you know, between 9 p.m., and by the way, they arrive there at 6.30. It's 9 p.m. now, and she's been shot for this long. Uh, Donald and this guy Forrester leave the apartment, and another discussion takes place about what to do. At this point... Donald feels that they're going to murder these victims, both Patty and Stacy. Wait, 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 wait. And so, brother, Don, so Donald is advocating. He's trying to convince the other guy. We have we have that as kind of a fact. No, the guy who wants to do the killing is this guy Rutherford. He seems to be the guy pushing everybody to do what they're doing. Donald's kind of, Donald Beersley, who got executed, he's kind of going along with everything. At least this is the way things seem. But, and, I, and I'll get to why this thing seems like not to jive. Okay. Use a term from the 1970s. Doesn't work for me. So, this, at this point, Donald Beersley believes that these women are going to get murdered. And when this guy, Frank Rutherford, hands and shotgun shells supposedly Donald Beardley says I'm not going to do this and at which point then William Forrester the other guy, the original guy who was ripped off by these girls says well I guess I'm going to do it meaning I'm going to take care of these women so <laughs> and again this seems kind of muddled to me but and then Patty who who's been wounded this whole time, she's loaded into their own van because the girls came in a van. And William Forrester um, and Donald Beersley, sitting shotgun, they drive away with this young woman named 
Sonoria, Sororia, Soria, Ricky Soria, who is Donald Beardsley's roommate, and they she follows in Donald Beardsley's car this van that's carrying um, Patty, who's been shot. So I mean, this doesn't seem like it's working. I don't know what they're doing. This is hairy. This is a hairy situation. Yeah, but it seems like there's a lot of misgivings and uncertainty. But one thing's for sure. It seems like they're all aboard of doing something. They just, it doesn't seem like you know exactly what they're going to do. But Ricky Soria, who followed in Donald's car, seems to be behind this whole thing as well. She seems to be goading these guys on. So... So get this, Frank Rutherford, he stays behind with the other supposed victim at the apartment. Okay, so here we got William Forrester, the original guy I ever thought, and he's driving the van. They're going south on Highway 1. They go on to Bean Hollow Road where they stop. Patty gets out of the car and starts pleading for her life. She knows what's going on. And then Donald Beersley loads the shotgun and gives it to Forrester, who shoots her twice. Okay? Now, at this point, Donald takes the gun from him, the shotgun. Donald Beersley reloads the gun and shoots her twice in the head, killing her. I mean, this is really weird the way this is taking place yeah so this is getting weirder by every sentence that you that you elaborate on um so just to kind of recap that would be an atypical crime that, that would be not your run-of-the-mill way things go are, are you i don't want to put words in your mouth are you saying that maybe he was just kind of a patsy well, it seems to be that way from everything that he says. And, and I'll get to that part where why this thing seems a little weird. And it, it seems weird because it comes from Dick Donald Beardsley. So, so let's get back to the crime scene because now they have a body. So let's, let's reset it real quick because this I was a little bit like I didn't know what we are getting into. So he's he's got a shotgun there. Yeah. Uh, Donald Beardsley loads it, and this guy, William Forrester, who was the original guy who was ripped off by these girls, he shoots her twice. And then dark Donald Beardsley loads the rifle again, the shotgun, shoots her twice in the head. Now we have a body in a ditch, and they simply just drive off. Uh, Ricky Soria and William Forrester in the original van that was the girls' van and Donald is now in his car, and they're driving. The van runs out of gasoline. They get out, they wipe it off, the whole thing for prints, and abandon it. And then Soria, or Ricky Soria, and Donald drop off Forrester, and then they return to the original apartment where um, Patty was shot. But there's no one there now. We left Frank Rutherford and Stacy at the apartment. They're no longer there. So um, Donald Beersley and Soria, who actually live at that apartment, are there, and they had to get a phone call at 3 a.m. And they asked that, and it, 
the person that called is Frank Rutherford. He says that he's at his girlfriend's house, Dixie Davis, and he wants them to come over. So sure enough, Jersey gets in his, in his car and drives over with Ricky Soria. When they enter the apartment, they find Stacy, the other girl, watching television because she assumes that Patty was taken to a hospital because they had mentioned taking her to a hospital. That's where they were taking her. They were, they were leaving to take her to the hospital. Obviously, that didn't happen. And then Donald Beersley steps up and tells this guy, Frank Rutherford, that Forrester had chickened out of the whole thing and that he had to finish the job. At which point, Frank Rutherford tells him, you should have killed him. And then Donald's re reply to that is, I would have, but Ricky Soria wouldn't give me more shells. So why that is happening there, I don't get that. Why would he tell him that William chickened out when in fact that guy is the guy shot her twice to begin with? That makes no sense at all. I think this guy Beers, he's really boister he's being boisterous. Yeah, I did this. I'm the one who finished it. I took care of this. So they're sitting around for about half an hour, an hour, and now the four of them, Donald, Ricky Soria, Frank Rutherford, and Stacy, get in Donald's car and they leave, supposedly to go pick up money owed to Stacy for a drug deal. Then they go to Pacifica and buy cocaine. They get back in the car and they drive to Frank Rutherford's brother's home in, Su Su in Sebastopol. Sebastopol, I believe that's pronounced. It's up here in the Bay Area. Where Donald now says that he hears Rutherford get advice from his brother about where to drop off Stacy, meaning where to kill her. So... You know, they're obviously, at least Rutherford at this point, is thinking about killing Stacy. Uh, once again, they all get in Donald's truck, a car, and they head north on 101. And they turn onto a side road, and Stacy's told by Rutherford that they were going to Lakeport to get drugs. But suddenly, Donald Beersley stops the car at a turnout and Stacy's coaxed out of the car. So how she doesn't know that something's going to happen to her is beyond me. I would have hightailed it out of there immediately. But she stays walking with these people, and then Donald Beersley and Stacy are left alone for a moment, and she tells him, are you supposed to strangle me now? And he replies, no, I'm not. <laughs> hmm. That's a yeah. weird question. I've never, no one's ever well, asked she, me that before. Yeah, she has to know that something's not going right. You're in the middle of nowhere at 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, dirt road. I mean, what is wrong with this woman? She doesn't understand what's going on. Maybe she's high on drugs. She's not getting it. But then Ricky Soria and River join them again. And she whispers, meaning Soria, Ricky Soria, the, the young lady, she whispers in a low voice to Donald that Rutherford had fixed up the wire. This time, Beardsley, 
and Soria walk away and leave Rutherford alone with Stacy. Suddenly a commotion goes on and right away Ricky Soria urges Don to go help him. She knows what's going on. When Don arrives, he finds Frank Rutherford sitting on Stacy, strangling her with his left hand. And Frank tells Don, and I quote, she's a die-hard bitch, meaning she won't die. Donald's reaction to this is to punch her in the temple, hoping to knock her out. He's unsuccessful. So the two of them try to strangle her with a wire and finally drag her into a secluded area where, using Rutherford's knife, Donald Beersley slits her throat. That's a pretty, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a lot. It's so that's depraved, and all I keep thinking about as, as you're describing these events is, I think it might have occurred to a normal person like, oh, I could make a few dollars, you know, um, selling some cocaine and inflating the price. I don't feel there's anything especially unethical about it, but when you get into these situations, I feel like it almost always goes down this road, which is there's cash, someone's insane, they're on drugs, and it, it's just not worth it. I, I really would advise anyone thinking about it to not uh, get involved. Yeah, things can go really to the left very quickly when we're dealing with money and drugs. And as early today, someone asked about a question uh, regarding markups on drugs in prison. This is what happens to people in prison who don't pay debts get into drug trade and that kind of thing. This is exactly what happens. They don't get taken into a highway, they're stabbed in the yard. And I'm not justifying that this should have ever happened. These people were not of sound mind and or they knew exactly what they're doing and they were just evil people that wanted to kill these two for whatever reason that they got ripped off by these girls or whatever the reason may be. As you said, these situations once they get going, it's very hard to turn back from them. You have people like Donald Beersley, Frank Rutherford, and William Forrester, as well as Ricky Soria on the other side, and they're the ones that are going to be doing the no good deed. So going back to the story, once she's dead, um, Rutherford tells Don to put her pants down to make it appear she was assaulted sexually. Then they drive back to his girlfriend's house at Dickie, Dixie Davis's apartment. And it doesn't take long for them to find the first body, which is Patty um, Gilding's body, find her, joggers find her actually. And um, would you believe it? In her clothing, law enforcement find a shoe repair claim ticket. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen shoe get repaired but this had to be the 70s or early 80s but on the ticket you're gonna love this guess whose phone number is on there no way i swear donald beardsley's freaking phone number is on this thing so sergeant robert morris of the san mateo county sheriff's office he just simply dialed the number and asked who was speaking well the 
said, Donald Beardsley, of course. And he asked, do you know this girl by name Patty? He said, oh, yeah, I know her. Would you mind coming in to make a statement? Absolutely. He comes in, and during an interview, obviously the detective being experienced kind of sees this guy twitching around, and he starts to talk to him about what the difference is of a witness and a suspect. And at which time, looking Donald Beersley in the eye, tells him, were you involved in this case? And lo and behold, Donald says, well, Frank shot her, but I guess I'm involved because I shot her twice in the head myself. I was afraid. He's then read his Miranda rights. Then he gives a taped confession to both murders, as well as directions to where Stacy's body is and where key evidence has been scattered in different locations. <laughs> and of course, he gives up his crime partners who was involved, what they did, how they did. But here's where well, I wait, say can, things don't jump. Can, can we but, pause real quick? Because I'm as sure. I'm picturing this guy involved in this situation, and I'm not sure if you if you met him, if you knew him or knew his reputation, I'm assuming he had a drug problem. Uh, and it doesn't sound like he's like super bright, but also if, if he was on drugs that could explain this sort of erratic, uh, like, can you give us a, just a, a little bit of like what, like your perception of, of this guy is? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm going to look at this thing with a common sense eye. Here it is. The notion or the theory that drugs drove him to do this, absolutely wrong. And I'll tell you why. In 1969, when he murdered the other young woman, he was not on drugs. He just did it and then went into the police department and said, hey, I did it. He gave a complete confession, did seven years in prison, never gave a reason for it. But he did it. So here we are again, when he gets out, he seems to find these situations. And his position is that he's afraid. And that's why he went along with everything. So here's why it doesn't jive with me. Nor the drug thing, nor anything else that he is saying. First of all, he immediately says, I'm afraid. Second of all, his defense during trial is that he was a minor participant and that he was he didn't want to be considered a witness, so he became a participant he was afraid of Frank Rutherford. Okay, so that makes a little bit of sense, right, you'd think? Well, here's where it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, no one could convince me to shoot someone with a, a shotgun. Right. And then second of all, Ricky Soria was a witness. She wasn't really a participant. She didn't shoot anybody. She didn't stab anybody. She was there. She participated in driving and all this. She didn't actually do it. We have 60 seconds remaining. The theory that Donald Beardsley did this because he's afraid of Rutherford makes no sense because Rutherford already shot her. So why did he have to overkill it? That makes absolutely zero sense. Um, it infers that because he then, during his trial, 
and I'll have to come back to this because it's going to cut off, and I, I really want to talk about this because it's important that the listeners get to understand what the defense is about and where Donald Beardsley's participation is clear. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sorry, I think we should let the, the listeners know that the reason I keep coming back and cutting off is because every 15 minutes, my phone time is up and I have to recall back every 15 minutes as part of the... I don't know, the Global Telink, uh, the company that runs the phones here, every 15 minutes a cut. It's really annoying. I don't understand why, if you're paying by the minute, why can you not just talk indefinitely? And when they announce that you have uh, one minute left, it's, it's it's louder than like a Metallica concert. It's, you know, it's so jarring and it's annoying as hell. Yeah, and I just thought they should know that. So when they hear like my voice jump or something, and we can blame one person for that, and that's my co-host, Matt Ralston, his editing, okay? So please don't blame <laughs> me. Blame Matt. <laughs> so, yeah. So so let, let's get back to this case, which is really strange. And, and it, as I say, it does not jive for me using a 1970s term. So here's the problem I got. So during the jury instructions so during a murder trial the judge always instructs the jury on how to decipher the evidence how to use the evidence and there's oh my god there's dozens of these instructions which i'm sure most juries say oh my god this is so annoying but one of the instructions that he asked for was this that honest belief of imminent pearl as negating malice so what that means in layman's terms is that if Donald Beersley believed that his life was in imminent danger, it kind of negates the malice that you would assume came with murdering somebody. And let me give you an example of that. We all heard of Patty Hearst. You know, she was accused of all these robberies and all this stuff, and she said that she was scared out of her wits. She was kidnapped and forced to do this. And that was also the instruction read to her jury, which was she believed that she was in imminent danger and she would be killed if she did not go along with this. That works. That works for me in terms of a woman being manipulated by big, thuggy guys with guns. The reason it didn't work for me with Patty Hearst is because she's holding a freaking machine gun so yeah i think she was pretty yeah. into it actually yeah yeah anybody with two cents of a lick of a brain would tell you that so i believe the same thing with donald Beersley. look if i'm in danger of being killed and this is me purely talking as a convict here who has had a lifetime of nearly 40 years in prison if I now have a shotgun in my freaking hand, it's loaded, and this guy, Frank Rutherford, is the guy that's supposed to kill me if I don't go along with him, guess what? <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't get that. Donald Beersley has the gun in his hand at some point, and rather than shooting Rutherford because he's doing these terrible deeds, he's forcing him to kill somebody, he takes two shots to the woman's head. Yeah, and so his... his excuse was... I'm, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say his defense is, I don't even know another word for this, is that he's kind of a a pussy. Yeah. Let's use Arnold Schwarzenegger's words during his governorship of California, a girly man. 
I feel like my word was less offensive than that, even. But anyway, what were, what were you saying? <laughs> yeah, so it, it doesn't make any sense. And here's the here's the part that so this guy Beardsley, if he's so afraid of this guy, like he says he is, which I don't buy. When he gets to the police department, the first thing he does is snitches on all his crime partners. Everybody that was involved, he snitched on them. It's also the reason that Donald Beardsley didn't go outside on death row. Because he would have been killed. Well, yeah, that was, that was kind of, I guess, part of my question, which is, did it get out at all that his, A, he was an informant, a snitch, and that's not cool, but that essentially his defense was, I'm just like kind of a weak, a weak-minded person. Like, do people... Um, talk about that kind of thing? Yeah, people don't buy the stuff in prison. If you're a snitch and people know it, even if they're not involved in your case, they can care less about it. His own race in prison will take him out. Donald Beersley chose immediately not to come outside because he couldn't hang with the regular yard. They would have killed him. And ultimately, he went to North Seg to hide from people. Because as I mentioned before, here in East Block, on death row, if you go outside, you can't fake being a tough guy. You can't fake toughness in prison. No matter what anybody tells you, you can bluff your way into something, bullshit. These guys in here are expert at reading people like freaking lie detectors. They know who you are, what you're about, by just talking to you for three minutes. Yeah, and he's not a uh, formidable. He's kind of a, a just a dorky looking white guy. So he, he doesn't even he has no like intimidation factor. I don't even know if that matters, but I'm saying he doesn't have that either. No, he really doesn't. No, he really doesn't. Because I explained before, hey, anybody with a nine and a half inch bone crusher in his hand is pretty formidable. It doesn't take a whole lot to put that to someone's ribcage and kill him. So his size, the way he looked, hey, look, I know a lot of guys in the yard that are stone-cold killers, and they look like Howdy Doody, okay? Yeah, but if you have a face tattoo, I at least assume you're insane enough to do that. <laughs> you know, I have a saying about that. I always say that tattoos don't make tough guys. You know, a lot of tough guys don't wear tattoos. Actually, some of the guys I know that have the most killings in prison, they don't have a single tattoo on them. Yeah, no, but I, I'm just saying, if you tattoo your eyeball, I, I feel like I'm slightly more afraid of you. I don't know. I'm I'm an idiot. Let's keep. So what happens? No, you next? know, that's, that's a, no, that's a good call. It really is a good call. If you see a guy and you're not a prisoner or a convict or a criminal, and you see a guy coming with all these tattoos, you're thinking, Jesus, this guy right here, he, man, he's the kind of guy that would probably hurt somebody. A convict looked at it and read through that like a book immediately. Like, no, this guy's the real deal, or he's so chump that's just fake. No, I mean, I just, I feel like you might have hepatitis. Like, I don't want to get your blood on me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I hear you, Dad, but people are usually not very concerned about hepatitis in prison because if that were the case, guys in prison would get tattoos, right? Another reason I would do horribly in prison is just having these thoughts um 
Well, hey, man, you know, you can always, you know, sell up with some tough guy, right? <laughs> I don't like where that's going right? whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, nah, man. I, I mean, figure I, I threw a couple comedy jabs at you. Hey, I you know I know uh, I know sports books. You know I do pretty well gambling. I could be a bookie and you know do all right. Um, so actually, yeah, that would work. That would work in prison. A hustle like that would get you a little bit of respect there. And then of course, people don't want their bookie uh, taken anywhere, so they always look after him, right? Yeah. Although I have known people uh, when they're in debt, which most gamblers are, and the and the bookie dies, say by a bone crusher in a shower, uh, you've now eliminated your <laughs> debt. <laughs> yeah, there there is that part. There is that you know downfall of the career, but yeah. So yeah, so Donald Beersley just he's you know I always say this, but you see the most unlikely guys get executed. Be sure in some cases like William Bonnie. You know, some of these clowns that have been killed are serial killers. Yeah, or Ted Bundy. But most of the time, it's these guys that really don't personify the, you know, the term evil. Yeah, well, you've, guy, you've made a point, which I, I didn't know when we, when we first started communicating. The death penalty was sold to the public as the worst of the worst. Meaning, yeah, people like Richard right. Ramirez and people like that. And... This guy is just like a token loser. It doesn't embody that. That that's not how it was sold to us, right? Exactly. And and if you look at some of these other main lines where guys are doing you know, level fours and they have seven, eight, nine murders, and they had murders as as, as teenagers, and they got you know life, or they got two hundred years to life or something, you kind of wonder, well, why did this guy get it? And this. Like you said, loser. That well, he did have two murders. You know, why did he get the death penalty? Why was he executed? Does he really personify total ego evil like Richard Ramirez? And the answer, the clear answer, is not even close. This guy's a chump. Yes, he killed two people. Did he deserve to get punished? Absolutely. But does he deserve the death penalty? I mean, at this point, no one gives it. It's like shit. I don't care. But the cost to taxpayers is ridiculous. Do you know it costs $114 million a year to keep death row alive? $114 million. And that estimate was in the 1990s. Can you imagine what it costs now? Yeah, and, and I mean, you're right. But if you, if you want to execute everyone that's on this guy's level, we'd be executing probably thousands of people per year. And unfortunately what comes with that is sometimes you execute someone who's uh, maybe innocent. Like we've talked about with Tommy Thompson, people like that. Absolutely. And then we turn into China or Iraq or Iran where they just smoke people just to be smoking them. So yeah. So this guy here really bad guy. Absolutely. Kind of a stooge, but they did execute him. He, uh, he went quietly. But he didn't say I love you to his lawyer or anything like that or, or thank you to his lawyer like the last clown that said, uh, 
his lawyer said, I love you. And she thought it was, thank you. Damn, what a kick to the nuts of that lawyer. Or not for that she was a woman, but. That's not yeah, the a, time to play hard to get. Yeah. Yeah, right? I love you. Hey, gee, thank you. <laughs> so this guy went quietly. He went in there, they stuck the needle in his arm, and a few minutes later, you know, you could play, you know, Kansas is dust in the wind because he was dust. I don't even remember. Did he have anything special to eat that night, uh, uh, Matt? No, I see no notes of uh, a last meal or last words or anything. Um, I mean, this could fall into the category of it's not very high profile, so maybe he, you know, he did have that, but there's nothing I could find about that. Maybe no cottage cheese and hominy or nothing like that? <laughs> no, no uh, grilled cheese sandwiches with radishes um, or... Uh, wow. Yeah, no, uh, n- nothing crazy. I mean, that's why he, he seems like a passive guy. You know, I could just see him shrugging his shoulders like, I don't care. Just kill me. I don't. No one cares anyway. Let's get it over with, you know. Yeah, I didn't, uh, there wasn't much, uh, hubbub in here about it. We were, we were already, um, I believe this is the, um, the 11th guy that had been executed in San Quentin. And we only have two guys left. And the next one is actually a doozy, uh, because of the type of attention as well as sort of some of his deeds and, uh, who he was. And um, I won't keep the, the listeners in too much suspension about who he is, but he is um, Stan Tookie Williams is the next person we'll be covering his execution. And it, it, that was going to be uh, a rather controversial one because of what he, he brought to the table in all sense. Yeah, the, the next two are, are uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah, both both uh, guys. The last two cover that we were covering as the execution series are definitely interesting guys. Uh, one more than the other for a number of reasons, and I did know both of them very well. Uh, and in, in the case of uh, Stan Tucky Williams, I worked out. I was in the same yard with him for uh, more than a decade. I often had conversations with him, and in terms of Ray Allen. He was also in the same yard with me for more than a decade, and he was actually on my yard when they actually took him up to be executed. So I spoke to him. Uh, I spoke to him actually prior to him being executed, just prior to it. So yeah, very interesting cases and interesting people. I am Matt Ralston, and uh... and I'm William Nogueira, and this is the Death Row Diaries. Yeah, and we'll see you next week. All right, follow us on Instagram, Death Row Diaries, and Facebook at Death Row Diaries, and patreon.com slash Death Row Diaries. And go ahead and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. Totally appreciate it. 
And thank you so much to Arlo Sanders for supplying the music and to me for uh, producing the show. All right, we'll see you next time.